You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today we will discuss A Valentine Gone Deadly, the murder of Susan Hamilton. Hello, and welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. Today's episode will be the final episode of our Valentine's Day series until next year. I hope that you have all enjoyed these morbidly themed episodes. I know that personally, I have just been completely immersed in and enthralled by these last few cases. But honestly, I feel like I could say that about every single case that we cover. Um, Every case that we cover, I catch myself saying, I wish this wasn't unsolved because I just want to know. Today's case is a little bit different because there is actually someone currently serving a sentence for this crime, although they claim that they are innocent and that this is all just a tragic accident and mistake. Oh boy, if we had a nickel for every innocent man serving time in prison. But there are some things in this case that are tricky to explain, so I'm going to present you with the details and you can be the judge and jury. Before we get to our case today, though, we do need to do a little bit of housekeeping. First things first, I did get a few messages from people this past week saying that they were having a difficult time listening to my latest episode, episode 70. So I looked into it and found that it was still available to listen to with the podcast app and my website, www.mysterystillunsolved.com. I think iTunes and Spotify were just like having some issues because the episode was not loading there. But I've checked it since that day that I got all those messages and it seems like it's working now, fingers crossed. Not really sure if it was on my end, but I'm thinking that it was most likely an iTunes Spotify issue. Maybe they were just having like some trouble wiring, troubleshooting, whatever you call it. But thanks to all those who reached out and let me know it should be fixed now. But like I said, as always, you can go to my site, www.mysterystillunsolved.com, and all of my episodes are compiled there and ripe for binging. If you aren't already following me on Instagram at mysterystillunsolved, Do you really want to hurt me? Do you really want to make me cry? Well, stop it, you psychopath. Be kind to me and yourself and follow me. It'll be the best belated Valentine's Day gift you could ever gift yourself. I promise. Also, I am doing a call out for reviews on whatever medium it is that you love listening to podcasts. So, If you like what you hear and you think that more people should listen, this is a very simple and free way to support the podcast. The higher the rating and the more ratings I get, the easier the accessibility to people just like you who are in search of another delightful true crime podcast. And I think that we all know how frustrating it can be when we're all caught up with our favorite podcast and we have to wait a week in between. Oh my gosh, torture. So help out your fellow man and womankind and leave me a review. Thank you in advance. All right, so without further ado, (laughs) let's get started with today's episode. Let's do this. On a bright and sunny morning in 2001, Susan Hamilton was preparing for a busy day. Not only was it Valentine's Day, but she was in charge of her husband's medical clinic. Her husband, Dr. John Baxter Hamilton, was an OBGYN and a very good one at that. There were waiting lists of women hoping to be in his care, so managing his office was no small feat. 
By all accounts of her, Susan was referred to as smart, capable, talented, beautiful, a trophy wife. And everyone agreed that while John was certainly a star in his own field, everyone knew John was a very, very lucky man to have snagged someone as vivacious and lovely as Susan. The two had met at a party of a mutual friend. Both were recent divorcees, and they each had two children from their previous marriages. Two years after their very first date, the two married at John's country club. And I think that John knew he was pretty lucky, too, because when Susan and John were married, John surprised her with a Porsche. (laughs) Do you say Porsche or Porsche? I feel like everybody says it differently. Maybe nobody knows. Maybe it's an enigma, like Puma. Here in the States, we say Puma for the brand that like was really popular in the 90s, but in other countries, they say Puma. There you go. After the wedding, John continued to spoil his wife with gifts, custom jewelry, exotic cars, lavish vacations, the works. Friends of the couple said that they were convinced that the two were deeply, madly in love. Now, Susan, she's got game. Not only did she snag herself a rich husband, but she didn't even do that like annoying thing where girls in their 20s like cozy up to an old dude to get everything that they want and more. No, no, no. Susie was classy. When they married, John was 37 and Susan was 39. She was a cougar. I love it. And you've got to give some snaps. Major props to Susan. I wish you could have taught us your way, Susan. Susan woke up that morning and had a light breakfast. It doesn't specify exactly what she ate, but I imagine it was something like coffee with half a grapefruit and maybe like a croissant. This is what I imagine wealthy trophy wives eat for breakfast. A far stretch from what I eat, which is normally a couple of fistfuls of dry um, Lucky Charms and a sip of leftover melted smoothie at like 11 a.m. when I finally realize that I haven't eaten anything. And that might be the real reason why I'm feeling so faint. (laughs) But not Susan. No, no, no. She's classy. She's glamorous. And she seems like a cup of coffee, half grapefruit, croissant kind of gal. After eating her breakfast, she took a shower. And this is one of the few things we know for sure happened that morning because other than this, we just know that Susan never left her house that day. Meanwhile, as his wife showered, Dr. Hamilton performed his scheduled surgeries for the morning. After he was done, he stopped by his home on the way to his office. He had purchased some flowers and a card to surprise his wife for Valentine's Day because The doctor knew how things at the office could be. One second, you're casually meeting with excited, expectant mothers, and the next, there's like a woman with preeclampsia, and the baby needs to come out this very second. And that could mean he would be stuck at the hospital all night. And he wanted to make sure he got his wife flowers this Valentine's Day because they had kind of been in a rut for the last two weeks. He wanted to bring her flowers in the middle of the day to surprise her and show how committed he was to her. He wanted to show her with his actions, that he had meant what he said. Once home, he found the back door was wide open. Upstairs in the master bathroom, he found his wife on the floor and a pool of her own blood. She was still alive, but unconscious and barely breathing. Dr. Hamilton called 911 and attempted to revive her, but it was just too late. In the 911 recording, John can be heard crying and yelling, send the police, send an ambulance, my wife is dying. He then tells the 911 operator that he is performing CPR. 
When the paramedics arrived, they were met with a grisly scene. Susan had been strangled with not one, but two neckties. Her head had been so severely beaten that parts of her skull had shattered and like brain matter was exposed. So it was incredibly shocking, even to trained and experienced paramedics. The killer apparently escaped through the back door, but none of the neighbors had seen anything. When police first arrived at the scene, they were convinced it was your average run-of-the-mill burglary gone bad. Dr. Hamilton and his wife lived in a highly coveted and affluent neighborhood in Oklahoma City. It was the perfect target area for someone looking to steal some valuables so that they could make some quick cash. It was believed at first that an intruder entered the home and began casing it. Unbeknownst to them, Susan was in the shower, and she must have come out either because she heard a sound or her shower was just over, and she must have startled the intruder, and that's what led to the attack and Susan's subsequent death. However, after speaking with John, it was also a strong possibility, and the possibility that police really focused primarily on, that Susan had been targeted. But Susan was lovely. She was vivacious. Whatever would she be targeted for? All right, so as an OBGYN, Dr. Hamilton did perform abortions at his clinic, the very clinic that Susan ran. They had recently gotten on the radar of some anti-abortion groups, and these groups had picketed their office and held protests. These anti-abortion groups had even distributed posters all over the city that read, Wanted for Murder, John Hamilton, that sort of thing. Dr. John Hamilton and his wife were unapologetic when it came to the goings-on of their clinic, and that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. A local reporter in the area stated, quote, that didn't go too well here in the Bible Belt. It didn't sit well with a lot of people, end quote. In fact, one week before Susan's untimely death, the office where Susan and John worked had received a fax from one of the anti-abortion groups. The fax read, the Hamiltons, wanted, dead, or alive. They also received a bunch of menacing and threatening phone calls, and just two days before Susan's murder, the clinic had almost been the victim of arson. Yeah, someone had unsuccessfully tried to burn their office down. Even though police were pretty certain it had to be someone getting back at them for performing abortions at their clinic, per routine, the police took John back to the station to be questioned and interviewed. The two police officers led John to an interview room and left him there for a little bit on his own. And this just continued the bit of, like, going off the rails. Video surveillance of the interview room shows a grief-stricken, mumbling basket case who keeps shuffling around and yelling, Please! Please! Please, someone help me! Who killed my wife? Help me! Help me! So... I don't think we'll ever know how we will react in this sort of situation. I don't think that there is a wrong way or a right way to grieve. Some people get hysterical. Others freeze and almost seem numb or in a catatonic state. Some will become violent while others chuckle nervously. We just really don't know how we'll behave. But that being said, it was the conjecture of the police at this time that John was laying it on a little thick. You know what I mean? They thought he was literally acting as someone who only watched CSI Miami. And this is how they thought someone who just lost their wife would grieve. It was John's behavior in this interrogation room and kind of like leading up to it that caused police to divert from their gung-ho belief that it was an outsider who killed Susan 
to the possibility that perhaps it was an inside job. There was just one thing keeping police from strongly considering John as their primo numero uno suspect. John had a very, very strong alibi that morning. At 7 a.m., John had gone to a clinic in the area to perform a surgery. Then he had another surgery at 9 a.m. When he came in for that 9 a.m. surgery, co-workers who normally worked with him claimed nothing seemed at all amiss. It was just a normal, chummy day in the operating room. At 10.45, John was on his way home to see Susan and give her the flowers. This timeline was really tight. So as far as being able to perform one surgery, go home, commit a murder, stage it as an intruder, get cleaned up, drive back to the clinic for the next surgery at nine, just didn't seem physically possible. It certainly wasn't impossible, but it would just be really, really difficult. While John was in the interview room, police searched his Jaguar, because I told you they love exotic, expensive cars. It was then that they discovered a red envelope, and inside that little red envelope was a Valentine's Day card from Susan. Words beyond the grave that were definitely difficult to ignore. The card read, I bought this card two weeks ago, so perhaps the words inscribed don't mean the same thing anymore, but I still love you. Have a good day love Susan. So cryptic. It would seem that perhaps John and Susan's relationship was not as perfect as it appeared on the outside looking in. Susan's neighbor and good friend who was also named Susan, so I'm just going to refer to her as the neighbor so we don't get things twisted and confused. So the neighbor said that a week before Susan Hamilton had confided in her that she believed her husband John was not being faithful to her. She noticed that John was getting a lot of calls on his cell phone, but he wasn't answering them. He would just look at the caller ID and ignore it. And this was very out of character for John because, as an OB, he needs to answer his phone calls, even when unknown numbers show up, because it could be a patient or a patient's husband or a patient's sister-in-law or mother or hospital calling to say that a baby is on the way. Or... It's possible that there could be like a postpartum complication or something like that. So yes, very unusual for John to do that, especially someone in that profession. Susan decided to press John about it. And after some wearing down, John admitted that it was a patient of his who was going through a difficult time and he had made the mistake of telling her to call him if she needed anything. But now she was just kind of going overboard with it and he was screening her phone calls. Susan acted as though she believed that, but she did a little digging of her own. She discovered that it actually was not a patient, but rather a stripper from a downtown nightclub. Susan then looked through the phone records and discovered that her husband and this woman had been communicating a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. There were over a hundred plus calls back and forth to John and this woman. So Susan decided to take this information and confront John about it. And John said, no, 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 she is a patient and she's very troubled and that she's even contemplating suicide. And he was really just trying to help her. He said if she felt he had crossed some boundaries, he was really, really sorry about it. And he promised that he was not having an affair with this woman. Police interviewed the stripper and she also confirmed that the two had never engaged in an affair or anything close. The neighbor and bestie tried to convince Susan to just let it go, 
It was most likely nothing because John was obviously so madly and deeply in love with Susan that there was really just no way he could be stepping out on the marriage. Investigators began to dig into John a little bit further themselves. They decided to interview the paramedic slash firefighter who had been first on the scene that fateful day. This EMT slash firefighter claimed that when he walked into the master bedroom, John was on his hands and knees bent over Susan. Uh, He said that he had one hand on her chest and one hand on her stomach, and he was pushing, like performing CPR in that way. Now, I don't claim to be an expert at performing CPR, but I've watched the Office episode where Dwight cuts off the dummy's face and puts it over his and says, hello, Clarice. I'm assuming a lot of you have too. And so I assume you know that this is not at all how you perform CPR. And that's fine. Like I said, not everyone knows how to perform CPR, but one would think that a prominent OBGYN, someone who performs surgeries weekly, would know a thing or two about how to perform CPR. I mean, honestly, one would hope. Am I right or am I right or am I right? The first responder also claimed the obvious. The scene was bloody including Susan's face. If John had really been performing CPR as he claimed he was doing during the 911 call, he definitely, certainly would have had some blood on his face or on his arms or the sleeves of his shirt, like if he had wiped it off. But no, nothing, not a thing. The cops who brought John from his home to the station were also interviewed, and they told a pretty odd tale as well. Apparently, everything seemed hunky-dory, and then they placed John into the back of the police car, and they said he began rubbing his fingernails, like, vigorously, almost to the point of being raw, on the mesh grate that separated the back seat from the front seat. He also began repeatedly bashing his head and upper body into the divider as well, essentially, like, harming himself to the point where they felt like they needed to subdue him. Once they get to the station, they took his clothes off as evidence and placed him in the interview room. And if you look back at the surveillance footage, you will notice that John immediately after the police officers leave, begin checking his shoulders, forearms, and hands. When investigators heard this testimony from the police officers who had brought him to the station, they, like, something clicked with them. They believe that John had staged the psychotic episode in the back of the police car to hopefully cover up and explain any defensive wounds he might have gotten while murdering his wife. They also thought maybe John had the foresight to rub his fingernails on the mesh divider, hoping to either shed skin cells from his attack on Susan or perhaps pick up DNA from someone else who had been in the vehicle so that the DNA swab of underneath his fingernails would result as inconclusive. But John had a busy morning that morning. He hadn't just performed one surgery, he performed two. How could he do all that plus commit a murder and clean up afterwards? Well, investigators decided to look a little more closely at John's alibi, and wouldn't you know, they found a gap. The surgery that John performed that morning had been scheduled for seven and then another one at nine. However, it didn't actually go underway until 9.40, and the reason it was delayed was because Dr. John Hamilton had been late. Hmm. Apparently, 
the OR crew had gotten the patient all prepped and under anesthesia when they suddenly realized that John wasn't there. And this is when they paged him. This delay opened the realm of possibility of John being capable of this murder from only having like 15 minutes to do it to a whopping 60 minutes. So later that same day, Dr. John Hamilton was arrested for the murder of his wife, Susan. The prosecutor knew that this wouldn't be an easy case to try. There was no murder weapon, and there was also one major thing lacking in the case. A motive. Yeah, that's kind of a biggie. The prosecutor dug and dug and dug until his hands metaphorically bled to find a reason why John would want to kill his wife. Was there past abuse? Did he have anger issues? Were there any previous arrests? Was he having an affair? Was there a recent life insurance policy increase? Was there a divorce coming up? Everything, but nothing turned out. They asked friends and neighbors, had they ever seen John just snap, just freaking lose his shit and flip out? No one believed John was capable of this. So the prosecutorial team had nothing. Ten months later, in December of 2001, John was put on trial for the murder of his wife, Susan. Prosecutors claim that when John received the suspicious and cryptic card from Susan that morning, it lit a fuse under his butt. Um, They think that he came home between surgeries to patch things up between them, but something in the bathroom happened. Perhaps Susan wasn't buying whatever it was John was selling, or maybe she had brought up divorce and he just freaked the F out and went into a blind rage and murdered his wife. Prosecutors claim that in order to cover this up, he had to go to his next surgery and act as if nothing was wrong. This, I imagine, would be pretty difficult. I mean, just the other day, I had to call up an office and sternly tell them that I would not be paying for a service that they had never performed and that they still wanted to try and charge me for. And even as the tough, stone-cold New Yorker that I am, I got a bit of adrenaline and uh, it kind of rattled me at the end of it. Um, I cannot imagine killing someone and then going to perform a surgery and have what I assume would require a steady hand and like a sound mind. Yeah, I just don't know if I realistically can see that happening. I mean, I know doctors are trained and are accustomed to pushing through under pressure, but How come that didn't translate later on when he just completely had like a brain swipe and forgot how to perform CPR? Defense attorneys claimed that this just didn't make any sense because even with the gap of time, that only left John 20 minutes in the actual home where he murdered his wife and cleaned up because it would have taken him 20 minutes to get there, 20 minutes to kill her, 20 minutes to come back. Um, So... He, they just felt like it wouldn't have been possible to do that and return to the hospital where he's found scrubbing up at 940. They also claimed that Susan had an appointment at 930, so she would have had to leave the house by like 920. But when Susan was found, her hair was still wet and she was undressed, which means the killer either got there right after John left or perhaps he had been waiting in the house the whole time. Prosecutors countered this, though, with a crime scene photo. Okay, so in this crime scene photo, there's the pool of blood around Susan, and there was a wash rag, and they felt it was almost as if someone had attempted to clean up and then just, like, 
given up halfway through, like thrown the thrown in the towel, as it will, um, perhaps because I had to go somewhere, like a scheduled surgery that they were late for. So without a real motive, they had to rely on blood splatter patterns. They hired a prominent blood splatter researcher who said that the blood splatter found on John's clothing that day didn't really match up with John's story. Also, his shoes, particularly the left one, was super suspicious. Apparently, John said he took his shoes off when he entered the home that morning, but his shoe told a different story. The blood pattern found in his shoes were consistent with flowing blood, not splatter from just like simply performing half-ass CPR. Uh, The most damning evidence of all was that inside of his car was blood, hair, and epithelial cells, all of which belonged to Susan. John claimed that this was because when he saw that that back door was wide open, he knew something was wrong, and so he rushed in the house, forgetting his cell phone in the car. When he found Susan in the master bathroom, um, he raced back to the car to retrieve his cell phone to call 911. This is why he claims all of those skin cells and blood were found in the inside of his car. John's team knew that this wasn't looking good for John, so they decided to hire one John Bevel, who was one of the most famous blood splatter experts in the world. So they bring in Bevel in hopes to prove that John is innocent. This blood splatter expert was the final witness in the trial, and everything he said did actually, in fact, help Dr. Hamilton's case. He said under oath that the blood splatter was consistent with John's report of the events. Without a murder weapon, it would be pretty difficult to say if something was blood splatter in regards to the object, but the blood splatter expert did say, quote, most of the blood on Dr. Hamilton's shirt is caused by blood that would have appeared in this pattern when someone is attempting to perform CPR on a bloody individual, end quote. So, yeah, John's feeling pretty good the super famous blood splatter expert, world-renowned, that they hired is telling the jury that yes, what John is saying happened is consistent with the blood pattern, the blood splatter patterns found on his shirt. That being said, the judge dismisses the jury and they are left to their own devices to either sentence John guilty or acquit him of all of the charges. The jury spent two hours deliberating, and Dr. John Hamilton was found guilty. Two weeks later, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Today, Dr. John Hamilton is in a maximum security prison in Oklahoma where it is believed he will spend the remainder of his days. Any motive as to why John would want his wife dead remains unknown. And this is suspect to me because you would think after all these years, after all this time, someone like a mistress, I don't know, a girlfriend or a secret wife or something would come forward even just to claim like their 15 minutes of fame, like write a book like I am Dr. John Hamilton's mistress, but no one has. No one ever, like when the prosecutor was trying to get the dirt on John. No one ever had anything bad to say about him. There are, of course, alternate theories as to who might have wanted Susan out of the picture. 
Some have suggested that it was the stripper herself who killed Susan, or perhaps she had Susan killed. A, to have John and all that he had to offer to herself, and B, this might explain why she has never gone public even to get 15 minutes of fame. Maybe she wants to stay in the shadows and not draw attention to herself, while someone else lives out the life sentence that should be hers. However, I feel like since she was on the police's radar, like they did interview her, if there was any evidence leading back to her, probably would have been discovered by now. There is always the possibility that a member of one of those anti-abortion groups or someone who saw one of the wanted posters that had been plastered all over town took it upon themselves to create this elaborate scheme in where Susan is murdered and John is blamed for it, thus killing two birds with one stone and get the two out of the way. Or there is certainly the possibility that it was just like a rando house burglar and that he was just surprised by Susan and killed her to leave no witness to the crime. Usually when we talk about murders, especially by a spouse, there are red flags. Even if the person involved doesn't notice them in the moment, over the course of time, and especially with an outsider's perspective, we can all say, girl, that was a red flag. But in this case, there really doesn't seem to be any, which just makes the possibility of John actually being guilty of this crime all the more terrifying. I mean, I would imagine the police interviewed his ex-wife, and it doesn't seem like she had anything negative to say about him other than, we just drifted apart and fell out of love. If it is the case that John literally just snapped on like one random Valentine's Day, that is terrifying because it means that someone with no previous violence or rage history can just up and crack and literally just kill you. I mean, not to say that Dr. Hamilton was old. I think he was like in his 50s, maybe his 60s, but he also wasn't a spring chicken. Is it possible that you can live a peaceful life for 50 to 60 years, exhibiting no signs or characteristics of violence, and then one day just kill someone you love with no motive? Is no one safe anymore? Jeez, this is making me side-eye Brian. Right now, I'm doing it. I'm doing it, Brian. <laughs> just kidding. We just always listen to these podcasts like before we post them, and so he's going like, to get a kick out of that. All right. What do you make of this case? Do you think it was the stripper? Do you think it was another unknown mistress? Do you think it was a member of one of the anti-abortion groups out to seek vengeance on this couple? Was it just some rando creep? Or do you think the right person is in jail right now? Do you truly believe without a doubt that Dr. John Hamilton is the rightful murderer? Is it possible that the same man who dedicated his life to bringing in new life was also capable of deciding when and how his beloved wife would meet her own demise? Let me know by commenting over on the post I made on my Instagram at mystery still unsolved. You know, I always love to hear your thoughts, theories, and opinions of all the cases that we cover. Speaking of cases, do you know of an unsolved mystery that you would like covered on Mystery Still Unsolved? Then shoot me a DM and let me know about it. I love covering cases that you all are truly passionate about. Want to know the best way to support this podcast? Of course you do. 
follow me on Instagram at mysterystillunsolved. Visit my website, www.mysterystillunsolved.com. Leave a review wherever it is you enjoy listening to your podcasts. Tell a true crime-loving friend or family member about me because, seriously, word of mouth is the best referral. And don't feel like you have to limit yourself to friends and family. Like, tell your barista, tell your masseuse, your kid's crossing guard, your grandma, your chiropractor. I want everyone to know about Mysteries Still Unsolved, and you guys can help me with that. Thank you so much for spending a little time with me this week. I know that there are so many other places that you could be spending your time, and I am so honored and appreciate you so much for choosing here. Don't forget to join me next Thursday when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved.